before you had the Golden State Warriors of today, there were the 2003-2004 LA Lakers. Um, they were one of the first super teams before super teams became a thing. And unfortunately, that's where the comparison ends. Lakers didn't win a championship, and Warriors did. They won three in the last five years, as Chris reminded us. Um, but the Lakers, the 2003-2004 Lakers, had four Hall of Famers. And so when they all like, got together that one summer before the season started, it was a big deal. Everyone was ready to hand them the championship. Except they hated each other. This team, they made it to the NBA Finals, but they ended up losing pretty decidedly to uh, this team that no one really knew about called the Detroit Pistons. Um, and after just one year, this super team came to an end. And there was an article that was released uh, about this team a few years back. Uh, it was kind of like an oral history of the team in which some of the coaches and some of the players, they were interviewed and they kind of spoke out about what, what went wrong with the team. Um, and one of the players, uh, his name's Derek Fisher, uh, he said this about the team, <coughs> the Lakers. He says, we weren't a team. We were a collection of very accomplished and high-achieving individuals even though we had a really good core and nucleus of guys who had been there for a few years already, we weren't a team. You can have great players, you can have great coaching the way that we did, you can have all the resources available to you, and you can actually make it all the way to the finals. But the best team will win that series every single time. The best team will win that series every single time. And that's a sports illustration, but I think we would do well to pay attention to that advice. Um, I think especially for you guys in your season of life uh, as collegians, and I, I don't think it's always intentional, but uh, for you, you are trained to think about me, right? Not me, but like you, you yourself. Um, you're, you're trained to think about your friends and your education, uh, your major, your career, your future, your time. Like everything that you think about is through a lens of how does this affect me? And I think in our passage, uh, Paul teaches us another way to think. It's not just about me, but how do we start thinking about we? Excuse that kind of that cheesiness. But how do we start thinking about others? Well, last week, uh, Chris took us through Philippians 1, 27 to 30, and the exhortation in that passage was to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, right? Living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And one of those defining marks of a life that is worthy is one, which looks like, as, as Paul writes, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Right? That is a picture of what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. <clears throat> and so far in Philippians, Paul has taken us through a progress report of how he's doing, right? Update on his condition in prison. And he says that the gospel has continued to advance despite his circumstances, despite the fact that he's in chains, all this bad stuff is happening to him, and the gospel it keeps moving forward. Um, and for the rest of Philippians, Paul is exhorting the Philippian believers, his church, to join him in that cause. Okay, so like, partner with me, come alongside me in the advance of the gospel. Work towards the progress of the gospel in your own church, in your own community, just as I am doing while I'm in prison. <clears throat> and one of the ways that we can make sure that the gospel keeps progressing, it keeps moving forward, one of the ways that we make sure that we don't put any obstacles in the way of the gospel 
Paul says is that we are united with one another. Right? We are united with one another, side by side, one mind, striving together for one purpose. And that is what our passage is about tonight, the need for unity for the progress of the gospel. And this unity comes through humility. Unity that comes through humility, and we learn that humility from the example of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's read our passage. We'll be in Philippians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Paul writes this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I have two points for us tonight. Um, two halves, I guess you can say. Point number one, the exhortation, unity through humility. The exhortation, unity through humility. Um, before we get to Paul's command in verse two, he sets up what is the basis for his appeal in verse one. Okay, look at what he says. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Okay, there's a lot in there, but what does he appeal to? Paul appeals to the comforts and the benefits of the gospel for the believer. Okay, the comforts and the benefits of the gospel for the believer. He says that as someone who is in Christ, these realities that he has just mentioned in verse 1, you not only know, but you have come to experience if you are in Jesus Christ. And there's a lot in there. There's the encouragement in Christ. There's the comforting love of uh, God the Father. There's the participation or the fellowship, koinonia in the Spirit. There's affection and sympathy and concern with one another. And Paul says, all of this, this is what you have in the gospel. Okay, this is what you have if you are a believer that, that's flowing from the triune God. And if you look at how Paul puts it, he says, uh, he uses the word if, right? He says, if these realities are true of your experience. Okay, but realize he's not, uh, he's not speaking hypothetically here. Uh, he's using that word almost kind of like asking a rhetorical question. It's, it's like, uh, have you experienced encouragement in Christ? Absolutely you have if you're a believer. Have you experienced the comforting love of God? Yes, you have if you are a believer. Have you experienced the supernatural fellowship in the Spirit Absolutely, if you are a believer. And so, Paul's tone here in verse 1, uh, it is loving, it is pastoral, it is tender. Um, I, I bet that he was reflecting on all of those benefits in his own life. And so, what he says is, if these grand theological truths are true of you, if that's true of your experience, then live that out in the way that you relate to others. 
Okay, live out your theology. Let your theology make a difference in how you live your life. And how do you do that? Verse 2, Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now notice how Paul frames his request here, right? Uh, The imperative, the command here is actually complete my joy. Okay, and what comes after is how the Philippians can make that happen. Um, I want you to think back to our study of Philippians so far, and we've already seen Paul as this man whose joy was out of the reach of his enemies, right? Paul is this guy who, like, you can't touch his joy. You can't break his joy. Whether his friends preach the gospel out of love or whether his rivals preach the gospel out of selfish ambition, what does Paul say? He says, I rejoice, and I'm still going to rejoice whatever happens, whether deliverance comes uh, by life or whether deliverance comes by my death, Paul says, I'm going to continue to rejoice. And so throughout Philippians so far, we've already seen that like, it takes a lot to break Paul's joy. And here, when we get to our passage, if there's one thing that could do it, if there's one thing that could rob Paul of his joy, then he says it's disunity in the church. It's when we fail to get along with each other. You see, that's what was happening in the church at Philippi. If you look at Philippians 4, uh, verse 2 to 3, Paul mentions these two women uh, named Euodia and Syntyche, and he specifically entreats them to agree in the Lord. There was this kind of disagreement going on. He says, you guys, uh, ladies, get, to, like, get it together, right? Like, get along with each other, recon- be reconciled. And we don't know what they argued about. It could have been super minor, but Paul knows that when disagreement happens in the church, then it's necessary to address it. It's necessary to fix it before it evolves into this dangerous disunity. In other words, disunity affects others. Right? Disunity hurts others. And I think we get that, right? At best, um, disunity makes things uncomfortable and awkward. Maybe you guys have been in that kind of group setting where like just two people aren't cool with each other and It's super awkward to hang out with them. At worst, disunity destroys relationships. It tears apart churches. And even if it starts as this thing between just two individuals, everyone can feel it sooner or later. Disunity hurts others, and it's not only inside the church, but disunity undermines the church's witness in the world. Scripture teaches us that the way that we live our lives, both as individual believers, but also as a corporate body, how we live our lives has an effect on how others receive the gospel. Right? It actually affects how people understand and see and receive the gospel. Think about it. What is an unbeliever supposed to think of the gospel if he or she looks at the church and people can't even get along with each other? And what does that say about the gospel? And so Paul says, verse 2, complete my joy by guarding yourselves against that. Complete my joy by pursuing unity with one another. And this is how he defines unity for us. Verse 2, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Okay, so I think similar to verse 1, uh, Paul is saying the same thing in, in several different ways. In fact, he even mentions, if you look at the list, he mentions uh, this idea of having a single-mindedness twice. <clears throat> He says that being united means that you all have the same mindset. You all have the same way of looking at the world. And realize this isn't just this kind of like cognitive uh, way of thinking. After all, he says, 
If you look at what he says, he says, not only being of the same mind, but also having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he's, he's describing this togetherness in feeling and in thinking. A togetherness both in your head and how you look at people and also in your heart, how you feel about people. Unity is when we all have this same togetherness, this same mindset, this same way of looking at things. Let's just think of uh, the example of a basketball team again. Right? You have five different players on the court for your team and each player on your team might be thinking a different thing. Right? Like one player is thinking, oh, how, can I, like, how do I shoot the ball? Another player is thinking, when do I pass the ball? How do I set this pick? Um, how do I get the rebound? All that kind of stuff. But you would hope that even though they're all thinking different things, that they still have the same mindset, right? That is to win the game. It'd be a lot more difficult to accomplish what you're trying to do if you have one person who's out to win, but you have another person who just like wants to get paid, or you have another person who's like all about his numbers, wants to score 50 points, all that stuff. What is our objective as believers? Paul already told us in Philippians 1.27, he says, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Right? That is the thing that we are after as believers. We are striving for the faith of the gospel. We are locked in on the advance of the gospel. That is what we're committed to, and that is the starting point. Okay, that's our objective. Um, I think A.W. Tozer, he gives us a helpful illustration of this. Uh, he says, <coughs> has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same tuning fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each, looking, uh, each one looking away to Christ, are in their hearts nearer to one another than they could possibly be. Were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship? What is he saying? When we're all locked in on that same thing, then we're automatically going to be tuned into one another. As believers striving side by side with one another, we are locked in on the advance of the gospel. That is our objective. But what does that look like in terms of how we relate to each other? Oh, I think that's what our passage is about. Paul says that if the gospel is what we're most concerned about, then resultingly, we learn how to get out of the way. Right? We learn how to get out of the way. We learn how to uh, get out of the way by putting others before ourselves. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each, of you not, uh, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Um, I think Paul teaches us this, that corporate concern for unity should result in a personal priority of humility. Corporate concern for unity should result in a personal priority of humility. That the path to unity in the church, if we want to be together in the church and with one another, that happens if we have humility in ourselves. If we each are pursuing humility in ourselves, or if I can put it this way, uh, unity begins with you. Unity begins with you, and that's, that's easy to remember because it actually begins with you. <laughs> I think this shows us something about the nature of true biblical unity, right? It's that true biblical unity uh, is not superficial, it's not shallow, it's not something that is just contrived. True unity isn't something that is external, that we're all just all trying to like get, but it's something that is internal. Yeah, I've heard it described this way, 
that unity isn't like a bag of marbles um, where like if you cut that bag open, then like just all the marbles spill everywhere, right? Once you take unity away, then everything just goes uh, haywire. Rather, unity is more like a magnet. There is something inherent, there is something internal that pulls two magnets toward one another. True unity is marked by this individual priority of putting others before ourselves. And in these verses, Paul puts it both negatively and positively for us, right? First he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's the negative, positively. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That phrase there, selfish ambition, um, it describes a greedy attempt to gain the upper hand. Okay, a greedy attempt to gain the upper hand. It's the same term that if you go back to Philippians 1.17, Paul uses to describe those who preach the gospel in order to afflict Paul, right? In order to kind of gain a one-up on Paul um, to, to make them look good. Selfish ambition is this lust after prominence and recognition even if it comes at cost to others. Conceit. Conceit is also translated uh, in some translations as vain or empty glory. That word speaks of having this exaggerated view of yourself, one that has no basis in reality. Um, I think most of you can probably think of that person where you're like, like okay, that person better not, that, that person better be humble, right? Because like, he's not that athletic, he's not that musical, uh, he's not that intelligent or whatever, fill in the blank. Like that person better not brag because he like, doesn't have much to brag about. Right, you guys can think of that person. How he esteems himself like better match up with reality. And I think that's what we're talking about here. Okay, stop thinking about that person. <laughs> so selfish ambition has to do with one's personal goals, okay, like just striving after greedily to gain the upper hand, and then conceit has to do with one's personal glory. And Paul says here that both must go. Rather, he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And I think it's, uh, it's noteworthy that Paul uses the word count here. Right? He says count, or in other words, reckon or consider. I, th- I think it's more of this kind of mindset type of language that Paul has already used all throughout this passage. Um, but I think it teaches us this, that humility doesn't consider the worthiness of the other person. Humility does not consider the worthiness of the other person. The point is not what others are, but what you count others to be. Will you consider them as worthy whether or not they are actually worthy? That's what it means to count others more significant than yourselves. Uh, He also says uh, in verse 4, that each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Okay, so I think what verse 4 teaches us is that humility is not only this attitude, this way of thinking, but humility is something that is demonstrated in practical action. Okay, it's demonstrated in practical action. You see, an attitude is abstract. An attitude can remain unknown until it is expressed in this concrete way. An attitude doesn't do anything for you unless you actually act on it. Paul is talking uh, about putting others first, not just in our estimation of them, not just in how we view them, but in our actual caring for them. See, you might think the right thing about someone, but when it comes down to it, will you actually stop in the middle of what you're doing and take time to actually demonstrate humility to someone? Notice also what Paul says. He says, let each of you look not only 
right? Not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, we don't need to be taught to seek our own interests. I think we all understand that. From the moment of birth, uh, people are urging others to meet their needs. That's why babies cry all the time. And sometimes it is sinfully selfish, but other times it is just basic to life. Um, elsewhere in scripture, Jesus assumes that we are going to love ourselves. We don't have to be taught how to love ourselves. He says, love your neighbor as yourself because you already know how to love yourself. Love your neighbor in the same way. And I think what Paul is teaching us here is we are to take that fundamental human trait of what it is to love ourselves, to look out for ourselves, and we are to enlarge our focus. We are to include other people. We are to decenter the self from your greatest concerns because as long as you are still in the center of uh, your life, then yeah, you can do this, this act of service for this person, you can do this act of service for that person, but as long as you are still in the center, you're always going to gravitate back to focusing on yourself again. And Paul is saying, no, decenter yourself. Don't only consider yourself, enlarge your focus to consider others. I hope it's been clear so far, humility is marked by a self-giving for the sake of others. A self-giving. You've probably heard um, this quote, humility is not thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. All right? and, and that's true and that's helpful. It's not some type of uh, personality, it's not some sort of temperament. Why? Because that is still self-focused, isn't it? In fact, a true uh, understanding of humility, as defined by scripture, I think challenge us, or challenges those of us who may have used personality as an excuse. And maybe some of you, you think humility is just like impossible for you because you're just more prone uh, to like speak your mind. Or others of you, maybe on the quieter side, you're like, oh, I just, I don't talk as much, and so humility just comes easier to me. I don't think we need to, uh, we shouldn't be thinking that way. Humility is not about ourselves, it's not about a certain type of personality, it's about others. I like this definition. Humility is not letting who you are hinder you from loving others. Humility is not letting who you are hinder you from, letting, from loving others. And by who you are, you can uh, fill in the blank. What, that can refer to your status, that can refer to your personality, that can refer to your reputation, uh, on and on. Humility is, does not let who you are hinder you from giving yourself to others. The humble person loves regardless of who you are and who they are. Humility is joyfully self-forgetful. It gets out of the way. It is seeking the interests and concerns of others above your own. And that leads us to our second point, the example. The example, exaltation through humiliation. Verse 5. Paul teaches us what this looks like. He says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being born in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, in these verses, we have probably what is some of the most theologically rich uh, verses in the entire New Testament. It probably deserves its own sermon. Um, some commentators believe that Paul, here in these verses, is quoting this well-known hymn at that time. Uh, but in these verses, Paul uses it, despite all of its theology, he uses it to point us to the greatest and the most shocking example of humility. And that example is our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what do we learn about him? 
here. There's a lot of Christology here. First, we learn that Christ was in the form of God. Okay, he was in the form of God. Um, I think the NIV's translation is helpful here. Uh, it's, it translates it as being in very nature God. The Greek word for form there is morphe or morphe. And it's not that Jesus only took the shape of God or that he was like God, but really not actually God. Rather, that word communicates that which truly characterizes a given reality. That which truly characterizes a given reality. In other words, Jesus possessed those characteristics and those qualities that are essential to being God. Okay, Jesus was God. He was in very nature God. And that's important because I think that sets us up for what comes next, uh, that Jesus' divinity from eternity past, highlights his humility in what comes next. It says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't consider equality with God as something he should exploit or take advantage of. He didn't consider it this privilege uh, to be exercised. And this was the attitude that allowed him to do what comes next. It says that he emptied himself. Okay, Uh, The Greek word there is kenosis. Kenosis. Sounds like a type of diet. Uh, he made himself of no reputation. And that word doesn't refer to like an emptying of qualities that he possesses. Like he didn't empty himself of God. He didn't cease being God, but he chose to make himself of no account. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8 9 describes it like this that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Okay, so he poured himself out, he emptied himself. And how did he empty himself? Look at what he says. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You get that? Christ emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Subtraction by addition, I guess you can say. Emptying by adding. Or emptying by adding. Christ emptied himself by adding to his divine nature the very nature of a human being. And we call this the incarnation. There's 45 days until Christmas. It's crazy. Uh, it's usually around this time that we actually give thought to Christ's incarnation. Right? Probably like the only season of the year that we give uh, adequate thought to Christ's incarnation. But um, it's such a glorious doctrine that Christ, God, would become man. That Jesus Christ, eternally God, eternally existing in perfect fellowship with the Godhead, gave up the privileges of heaven in order to take on human form. I think most of us, we're all relatively young still, but uh, most of us still, at some point or another, we like look forward to when our physical bodies will be made perfect, right? Like no more sickness, uh, no more weakness, no more injury, no more limitations, no more getting hungry, feeling tired, um, and like our knees don't even ache yet. Jesus Christ, you think about like how much we want to get rid of our human limitations, physical limitations sometimes. Jesus Christ chose to take on the weakness of human flesh, It says that Jesus, he took the form of a servant. You think of who a servant is. A servant has no rights, no rank, no privilege, no power, no significance. A servant has no status other than as one who is there to serve. And if that weren't stooping low enough for us, Paul continues, he says, being born in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Death on a cross. The ancient historian Uh, Josephus, he called crucifixion the most wretched of deaths. Romans used 
uh, crucifixion as this means of controlling mutinous troops, of breaking the will of their enemies, what they would do is they would set up crosses along the busiest roads in order to deter people from ever thinking of going against the Roman government. Normally, Roman citizens were safe from even the possibility of crucifixion. You wouldn't even speak of such a thing, no matter what their crimes. And so Paul, he wasn't exaggerating when he said in 1 Corinthians one twenty three that the cross of Christ was this stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The cross was that heinous. It was that unspeakable. And yet Paul says that Christ would humble himself not only to become a man, but to submit himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, like I said, I think there's a lot uh, we can take from these verses, but let me just boil it down to just a couple things. First, in your humble consideration of others, in counting others as more significant than yourselves, your rights and your privileges are never so important that you cannot give them up that you cannot give them up. Jesus gave up heaven. He gave up fellowship with the Father. He had no reason to do so. There's nothing better than what he gave up. For us, there's there's always like something better. Like we might feel like we gave up a lot, but there's like something better that we can still give up. But there is no such thing for Christ. Your rights and your privileges are never so important that you cannot give them up. And then second, in your humble consideration of others, as you count others as more significant than yourself, Christ's example teaches us that there is no task or there is no service that is beneath us. That there is no such thing as something being beneath your pay grade, so to speak. You think of the example of Jesus, right? On the night on which he was to be Uh, to be betrayed to the bewilderment of his disciples. What does he do? He gets down on his knees and he washes his disciples' feet. And even as he's being crucified, as he's hanging on the cross, like he's not thinking about himself, he's thinking about others. He says to his mother, woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. Like, you're gonna take care of each other now, now that I'm gone. Now, if Jesus, the matchless king of the universe, could willingly condescend to do that for us, then how can we refuse to give up our own rights? How can we refuse to give up our own privileges for the sake of others? See, we must not think of humility in the same way that we think of uh, volunteering for something. What do I mean by that? Well, what do you do when you volunteer? You give of your time uh, as though it's something that you can give. Uh, and you give of your time to those uh, to whom we, like, we think they're somehow in our debt, right? We give to those who are somehow beneath us. You go to the hospital, you go to church, uh, wherever, soup kitchen. You go there to help, but you're only there for a time, right? For a couple hours, and then after that, you return to your normal life. And I think we do this in our relationships as well. We have specific roles. We have specific uh, responsibilities in our relationships, Right? And, and when, uh, when we go above and beyond and do the job of someone else, the job that doesn't belong to us, then like, that's being humble. Right? You think of, uh, a lot of you guys live in the apartments, like thinking of, thinking of doing someone else's dishes. Right? Being humble is, I'm not only doing my dishes, but I'm doing like, my friend's dishes. Right? Or you think of um, maybe the dad who like, helps get uh, the kids ready, because that's like, usually the mom's job or something. Right? That's how we define humility is we do something that doesn't actually belong to us. In other words, we see these as beneath our pay grade, but we do them to be nice or we, we do them to show how humble we are. 
You see, I think the word humiliation is appropriate here because one, that's what Jesus experienced, but two, we must not think about humility from this position of strength. Right? We must not think about humility as if we're like stooping down to help someone because like we're better than them. Otherwise, humble service can end up just being this thing that serves to support our own reputation. Right? I'm just humble because it makes me look good. I'm just humble because I'm expected to be or because I'm supposed to be. We can't define humility simply as doing something beneath us because then we'll always see ourselves as better than what we're doing and better than those that we're serving. Christ didn't do that. See, in Scripture, there are many reasons that should motivate us toward humility. We should be humble uh, because we are finite and God is not. We should be humble because we are sinful and God is holy. But I think what we see in our passage here provides us this motivation for humility that goes beyond that. Why? Because Christ didn't have any of those things. Christ was not operating out of this deficiency. Right? He was not humble because he was finite. He was not humble because he was sinful. Christ was humble because he loved. Because he chose to be. Because he chose to put others before himself. We must humbly serve others because Christ humbly served us. He's our example and he's our motivation. Spurgeon put it like this, a sense of Christ's amazing love to us has a greater tendency to humble us than even a consciousness of our own guilt. See, how can we hold on to our own rights and our own privileges and our own self-interest when we look at the cross? How can we not be humble when we look at how Christ was humble for us? Let's get really practical. How can you count others more significant than yourselves? What, what might that look like uh, in your practical day-to-day? Well, think about your conversations. Do you ask questions to actually listen, to actually understand people? Do you take interest in other people, in their interests? Um, C.S. Lewis, he wrote that when you meet a humble person, you're not going to walk away thinking to yourself how humble this person was. Rather, you are going to walk away thinking what a great time you just had because of how much this person took a real interest in what you had to say. Is that true of your life? Do you see your conversations as this way to care for others and not just as something that like, we wait for others to do for us? Are you engaging people in conversation? Are you asking questions in order to enter into their world, in order to, to, to love them and to consider them before yourself? Are you generous in verbally encouraging and praising others? Do you say nice things about others and to others uh, without having to insert yourself into the picture? I feel like some of us, uh, like we operate as if there's only like this limited supply of encouragement that we can pass around, right? Like if we encourage other people too much, then that just makes us look bad, right? We have to like ration it or something. Are you generous in your encouragement of others? Even when you, when you compliment someone on, on something, on their strength, do you automatically have to like insert yourself and like compare yourself to them on what you just complimented, complimented them about? Or can you just do that and get out of the way? Do you acknowledge that others are just better than you at certain things? Can you seek to humbly learn from them? Are you content to be eclipsed by them or even replaced by others? Or must you always be the one to be the expert? Uh, One author, he wrote this. He says, every time a friend succeeds, something inside me dies. 
Is that how you feel? Every time your friend succeeds, that something inside you just dies, like it just hurts to see someone else succeed. Or can you forget yourself? Can you rejoice with those who also rejoice? How about this one? Are you willing to accept and even invite criticism and correction? Are you willing to uh, consider constructive and honest feedback from others as necessary and as helpful for you? as more significant than your own desire to look right or to justify yourself? Are you punctual? That might not seem like a big deal, but I think being on, on time to appointments, even if you might not consider it, it this like, important thing, is a way of considering others as more important than yourself. Right? That my friend's time is more important than the few minutes that I want to sleep longer or those few minutes I want to finish this Netflix episode. I want to consider others more important than myself, by being on time to things. Are you a helpful person? Are you, uh, I know living in the apartments with one another, even just being here at church, like there are always, always small opportunities uh, to help out with something, right? You can take out the trash, you can put away the chairs, you can help someone with a favor, um, but are you helpful? Right? Are you the kind of person who is willing and eager to lend a hand, even if you're not asked? Do you volunteer, volunteer and eagerly help others because you consider others more significant than yourself? Let me ask you this. How can you be considering others as more significant than yourself on Sundays here at church? After service, is your first inclination to get back to school ASAP so that you can study? Or can you be considering how you can take advantage of this opportunity while you're here at church with one another to fellowship and maybe go out to lunch or just spend time in conversations with people? Like, what is the first thing that you think about when you leave the sanctuary? I know many of you drive every week and you uh, make it possible for all of us or all of you guys to come to church on Fridays and Sundays. Um, So thank you for doing that every week. But if you're one of those people who catches a ride to church, how can you be considering others as more significant than yourself? Right? Can you, are you willing to just like wait around or stick around sometimes um, so you know, like someone else can serve dur- during like another service or something? How can you be thinking about others on Sundays here at church? I know the holidays are coming up, so many of you will be going home uh, to spend time with your families. Let me ask you, do you count your parents as more significant than yourself? Do you think about their needs as more important than yours? I know most of us uh, have grown up just having our parents meet our needs. Like, like it's their job to do so, right? Um, and even in college, like you go home and your parents, uh, they do the laundry, they pay tuition, and they give you food to bring back to your apartment. But how can you be lifting them up as more important than yourself? Especially as you go home for the holidays. How can you be considering others as more significant than yourself when it comes to uh, exercising your Christian liberties? As some of you, if you were of age, you were free to drink alcohol. You, uh, everyone is free to post this or that on social media. All kinds of liberties that you have. But if necessary, are you willing to defer for the sake of others? That others are more important than the freedom that I have to exercise of my own liberties. Right? Than my own privilege to drink or to do this or to do that. Martin Luther, he said, A Christian is, a, is perfectly free lord of all, subject to none. But a Christian is a a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. As you are free to do whatever you want, but will you exercise that freedom in order to love others? How can you be considering others as more significant than yourself when it comes to serving at church? 
Um, I know that many of you guys uh, hear about serving at church a lot, especially being part of like a ACF or something. Um, and you, you learn that like you're supposed to serve at church because church should be a priority for you, right, as a college student. But let me challenge you to think about it this way, uh, another equally important way, and that's how can serving at church be a way to consider others, consider others as more important than myself? Or like how can serving in children's ministry be a way of lifting up the needs of the parents here at Lighthouse rather than my own needs? Or how can serving in bridge ministry or, or special needs ministry be a way of like loving those families affected by disability and, and considering their needs more important than my own needs? One way that we can be humble with our talents and gifts, and I know many of you are very talented, uh, is not by denying them, it's not by like hiding them and pretending that you don't, you don't have them. One way that you can be humble with your gifts is by using them to serve others. Let's bring this to a close. Verse 9. Paul writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, there's a lot in here. Uh, these verses probably deserve more time than we can afford in this message, but uh, what, I, what I want us to see in verses 9 to 11 is that Jesus is no longer portrayed only as the humble servant, but the exalted Lord. That the one who condescended to the lowest place, even death on a cross, is exalted to the highest place. He is bestowed with the name that is above every name. And I think that teaches us two things. One, that the way up is the way down. Way up is the way down. For Jesus, the way to glory was the way of the cross. And if we want to share in the glory that really matters, not just the glory of our self-glory or glory from others, but glory from God, if we want to share in the glory that really matters, then don't just grasp and grasp and grasp, but give and give and give. That's what Jesus did. See, the gospel frees us to, to lose. The gospel frees us to, be will, to, to joyfully be last in this life. Way up is the way down. And then secondly, you matter, but you are not the point. You matter, but you're not the point. Jesus is the point. Romans 11.36 says that, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, uh, whether willingly or unwillingly, that Christ is Lord. Christ is the point. Right? And at the end of, uh, end of it all, like all of creation is going to acknowledge that he is the one that matters most. He will get the glory that he rightfully deserves. So while you're here now, will you point the glory to him, right? Will you realize that you matter, but you are not the point? You will joyfully point to Christ. You will joyfully put your needs uh, behind the needs of others. Again, one of the things that I pray for and I hope for you guys most is that, uh, that God would grow us to pursue unity together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is not just like solid teaching, not just I don't know, having fun together, but really that, that God would grow us and knit us together in unity as this ministry. And part of my job as a pastor is like trying my best to facilitate that, whether that's through like coffee time uh, or small groups or events or snacks after small groups, all that kind of stuff. And I think all of those things are good. But I think what this passage teaches us is that unity comes by way of each of us or each of you committing to being humble with one another. 
each of us committing to being humble with one another, each of us committing to consider one another as more important than ourselves. And that's all of us, right? That's me. Uh, it means that I need to grow in being willing to just like sometimes press pause, um, I think, on the task of doing ministry, uh, making sure things are, are ready for a Friday night and just having some time to like catch up with you guys um, sometimes. For, for us staff, it means that uh, we need to actively consider your guys' interest above our own, even if we've had a long week at work or like we're tired uh, or we've been up early this morning. For the rest of you, what that might mean is uh, speaking up in small groups right, in order to bless each other, in order to encourage each other, even though maybe for you, you would prefer not to talk. Or being humble with each other means uh, maybe asking someone how their week was, even though it might mean that you might have to be the one to carry the conversation. It might mean choosing to step outside of your normal friends, introducing yourself to someone from another school. Like that's how unity happens when we are all make the commitment to be humble with one another, to put others before ourselves. And why do we do this? Is it just so that we would be better ministry? Is it just so we would be more fun uh, people to be around? Is it just so we'd be able to say that we're united? No, we do this for the sake of the gospel. And we knew that we do this because Christ did this with us. Right? He did this with us. And, and knowing the sacrifice that he made for us, knowing the height from which he had to condescend, and how can we not also be willing to do the same? Let's pray towards that end. God, we confess our self-centeredness. We confess the ways that we have been so blind um, to the needs of others. And in that way, uh, actually detracting from the unity of this group. And so, Father, would you give us repentant hearts, um, give us the grace to change, give us the supernatural power to look not only to our own interests, something that is just so basic to our human experience, but also to look to the interests of others, to know that Christ did that for us. So, Lord, grow in us a humble heart even now as we move into a time of small groups. Lord, we thank you. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to move into a time of small groups. It's about 9, 15, um, maybe around 10, or a little past 10. Uh, we can be dismissed out to the foyer um, for snacks and fellowship. If you guys don't have a small group, you can come up here, and then I'll direct you where to go.